Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to a podcast from 702 and Cape Talk. 702 and Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. So we are now talking to our naked scientist, Chris Smith. Chris, are you there? I sure am. Good morning. Welcome. I hope you are well togged, uh, not naked today because it's very, very cold here in South Africa. How is it by where you are? Well, it's warming up a little tiny bit, but, you know, this thing we call summer Uh means it basically rains a bit less often and the sun, this bizarre bright thing in the sky, we occasionally see that, (laughs) but not often. I was a student in exile in the UK and I used to, when people asked me how was the summer, I used to say, I remember it was on August 12th. You know, choose one random date because it was so rare. Yeah, that fits, that figures. So I understand you got some good news on the Zika virus. Yeah, th- this is true. There's a, a paper come out this week. It's by researchers at Harvard in America. This is uh, a guy called Dan Baruch and his colleagues. And they have announced the first example of a vaccine for Zika virus. Now, this has only been tested in mice, so it is early days yet, but it does look very promising. They've made two vaccines. One vaccine they made the traditional, if I can use that word, way, which means they grew the virus in a dish, they then chemically dismantled the virus to make sure that it was safe and couldn't grow, they injected that chemically dismantled Zika virus into mice, and then at one month and two months later, they challenged the mice with Zika infection, and they were unable to detect any evidence of the virus in the bloodstreams of these mice, proving they'd been protected. The other vaccine they made is more experimental, but it was equally effective. They made what is called a DNA vaccine. They took the genetic message from Zika virus, which it uses to make its outer coat, something called the pre-membrane and the envelope proteins. By taking that short snippet of DNA, they injected just the DNA for that into mice and again the cells in the mice took up the dna read the genetic message in it made the surface coat proteins of the zika virus and showed them to the immune system and that made an immune response too and those animals were also strongly protected against zika virus now the crucial experiments they haven't done include using this vaccine and then showing that the mice are protected and the babies of those mice are protected because the thing we're really worried about with Zika virus is the threat to a developing baby if a mum who's pregnant gets infected. We want to see that uh, we can prevent those babies being damaged. They also haven't looked at uh, what happens if you challenge... Um, someone who's already got infection with a relative of Zika called dengue virus because there's lots of dengue around in Brazil and it's a close relative of Zika and we don't know if there's any interaction between prior infection with dengue and Zika infection or Zika vaccination, whether it will still work in that context. So those are important experiments that are ongoing, but it's very encouraging news. Wow, that's amazing. So, so Chris, uh, what's the most optimistic timeline, you would say? Like well, this. everyone wants to know that question. The, the bottom line is that it's going to take 
more than years um it's not going to be months here it's not going to be ready in time for the olympics because with anything that you're going to put into people this is intending to improve health and well-being and welfare of people you don't want to do anything that makes the situation worse so it's important that this goes through proper safety trials and that takes time so we're, we're looking at months to years yet okay well let's hope that goes forward unfortunately that won't give uh, people any uh, relief around the concerns around the Olympics, but let's hope we find a solution as soon as possible. We have a call uh, from Mark in Randburg. Mark, good morning. How are you doing? Hi, how's it? How are you? Okay. You have good a question for Chris? Ask Chris a question. Please. Chris, uh, we were having a chat the other night about how people age and the age of the heart and everything. Is it possible that if somebody is, like, let's say, 70 years old and you put a heart of a 25-year-old person in that old, if, would, they be, would they live longer or is it nothing to do with uh, the age of your heart? Oh, hi, Mark. Well, the body doesn't just age in terms of individual organs. The body ages as a complete unit. But very interesting experiments done within the last five years or so are what are called parabiosis experiments. Scientists in a couple of countries took mice, they took an old mouse and a young mouse, and they connected the circulations of the two animals. So you basically had a young mouse with its blood going around the body of the old mouse and vice versa. And what was incredibly interesting was that the performance of this experiment had a rejuvenating effect on the old mouse. It also accelerated the ageing of the young mouse. Scientists don't know exactly why yet, but there are clearly factors which are present in the bloodstream of an ageing individual which promotes ageing, and there are factors in the blood of a younger individual that keeps youth. And if we can find out what that is, it probably relates to what we call senescence, because as cells in your body age, they can only divide and grow a certain number of times before they are prevented from growing anymore because they are at risk of turning into cancer cells. So the body switches them off, but they don't die and disappear. They sit there stewing and sometimes spewing out nasty chemicals that can become deleterious to the behaviour of the tissues and organs in which they reside. And it may well be that the blood from the young animal helps to deactivate or reinvigorate those cells or that you get rid of some of those factors into the body of the younger animal which keeps the health of the older animal in tip-top condition. So scientists are looking into this because it could be one way in which you can reverse some of the effects of ageing. But to answer your question about hearts specifically, when we do a heart transplant, this saves lives and it certainly gives people additional lifespan because people who don't have a heart transplant for no reason, they've got to be at very real risk of their life prematurely ending to have a heart transplant. But the problems with doing a transplant and the attendant health problems that go with switching off the immune system so that the body can tolerate having a donor heart without rejecting it, those come with attendant side effects that mean that most heart grafts go for between 10 and 20 years, which might be less than that person's natural lifespan, but it will be 10 or 20 years that they wouldn't have had otherwise. Um, so I hope that answers the question anyway. Great, thank you. And just uh, for our younger listeners to remind them that, in fact, uh, the first art transplant in the world was done in Krutiskir Hospital in Cape Town by Christian Bernard. We now are going to go to Benji in Pretoria. Good morning, Benji. How are you? Uh, hi, good and you? Fine, thanks. What's your question hi, for Chris? Uh, sorry, just a, a, a quick question. Um, I'd like to know... Um, 
if, if uh, you're driving and someone's lights are, are bright behind you and you angle your rear rear view mirror down, how come you can still see what's going on behind you while the the mirror is actually facing the, the back seat? Yes, that's right. So you flick the mirror down into the position so that you don't get the headlights straight in your eyes, but you can still see a vague outline of the car behind, even though the mirror is now angled down. The reason for this is that the mirror works because you have got a sheet of metal with a silvered layer on it and glass in front of it. When you flick the mirror down, the silvered layer is indeed reflecting the light downwards away from your line of gaze, but the, the layer that the glass, uh, the glass in front of the silver, the interface between the glass and the silver can still reflect some light. That's called refraction. And when light goes from air into glass, it changes speed. And when it changes speed, it bends on its course. And so when you flick the mirror down, you get just the refraction off the glass, which is normally so inapparent up against the bright light being reflected properly that you can't see it. But now you've got that dark contrast. There's nothing else coming back off the mirror. You can see the reflected light, the refracted light coming off the glass surface. So you see a vague outline. It's not very efficient because only a tiny amount of the light is sent back to you in that way. But it's enough where you can just discern the outline of the headlights behind you. Thank you, Chris. And Benji, I hope that answers your question. We're now moving to North Riding. Uh, good morning, Moni. How are you? Hi, how are you, sir? Fine, thanks. I've, um, I've got a family member that's from a skin disease called lesion planus. I don't know how to pronounce it. I spell it. It's two words. It's L-I-C-H-E-N and then P-L-A-N-U-S. It's a skin disease he's, he's acquired not so long ago in his late 40s. Um and it's terrible. Um, any advice from the naked scientist? Over to you, Chris. Yeah, the, the condition is called um, lichen planus, and it's it's quite rare. Um, we think something like 0.1 or 0.2% of people have this, and we think it is an autoimmune disease. That means that the immune system is attacking tissue when it shouldn't do, and in this case, it's doing it to the skin. And it produces this red marking or red damaged areas on the skin. It's very difficult when you've got an autoimmune condition to do anything about it apart from switch down the immune system because what scientists haven't discovered how to do yet is reprogram the immune system in order to prevent it attacking things that it shouldn't do. I think that's coming because scientists are getting better at understanding why the immune system attacks and how it attacks certain things. And in the future, as gene editing techniques come along that will enable us to go in and edit the DNA in cells, it will become possible to identify which cells are responsible for this inappropriate immune attack and then deploy various molecular editing tools that will go in, target the cells that are doing the naughty thing and then chop out the bit of DNA that's making them do that so you stop that happening. That's a number of years off at the moment, so in the meantime, what people have to do for autoimmune diseases is to switch down the immune system. Now, that can treat the symptoms, but it does have side effects. There's no, no such thing as a free lunch in medicine, unfortunately, even from a drug company. And what the consequence of that is that you then become vulnerable to other infections and other problems, but it does mean that the more severe problem, the autoimmune disease, gets a bit better. Thank you, Chris and Moni. I hope that was helpful uh, advice uh, to inform your family member and uh, wishing them 
hopefully a solution to their problem. We're now moving to Cape Town to Jimmy. Good morning, Jimmy. Are you freezing there in Cape Town? Yes, freezing, freezing, freezing here. Um, hi, Chris. Um, the planet Earth is moving at the speed of 1,000 to 1,600 miles per hour. Now, number one, how come we don't feel nothing at all? And number two, let's say, for, for instance, if you, if you take a plane and fly, let's say, a kilometer, or let's say, a helicopter, fly a kilometer in the air and hover around for an hour, that means the spot where the plane, to, the helicopter took off, it would be 1,000 miles away because the Earth is spinning. Jimmy. Uh, thank you for your question. I, 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 I think there are many listeners listening to your question and thinking, oh, I'm, oh my God, I hope I don't ever feel how fast it's spinning because there's enough happening already on the planet Earth. But uh, over to you, Chris. Yeah, so just to put some sort of qualification on those numbers, what Jim is referring to, uh, you have a planet, it's a big ball, it's spinning in space, and at the equator of the planet, because the equator is roughly, let's call it 25,000 miles, we'll talk in miles because he said miles, uh, 25,000 miles around, it takes about a day for the planet to spin one complete circle, therefore it's doing 25,000 miles in about 25 hours, so therefore it's doing about 1,000 miles per hour. Why do you not feel like you're doing 1,000 miles now at the surface? Well, the Earth is huge, the Earth is moving, and you're moving, and the air above the Earth is also being dragged round by the Earth moving, so relative to you nothing appears to be moving so you have no idea that you are moving and it's the reason that the air is moving with the earth is in the same way that if you have a bucket of water and you put in your hand and you spin your hand around in a circle eventually the water catches up and starts to move with your hand and you get a whirlpool in the bucket take your hand out you can see the water continuing to go round exactly the same with the air around the earth so if you take off in your aeroplane or a helicopter and hover above the earth's surface the air you're hovering in is also moving around the earth's surface at the same speed as the earth's surface because the earth's surface is pulling it round therefore you move around with the air and therefore you appear to be staying static above the earth's surface great thank you chris um, and let's hope the world doesn't spill completely out of control in the coming months and years. Uh, we're going to go to Francis in Randburg now, Chris. Uh, morning, Francis. Good morning. How's it, guys? Uh, Chris, I wanted to ask you about GMO crops and the negative effects they have on humans. There's a big debate about about how bad they are for us, uh, and I want to know what they actually do to us that's so bad. Oh, yeah. Hi, Francis. Well, GMO stands for Genetically Modified Organism. <laughs> The basic premise here is that you can take, oh, you can take um, a plant and you, we know the genetic makeup of that plant and we can add DNA to the genetic information in the plant to give the plant additional abilities to do things. For instance, we could add to the plant a gene which would increase its leaf area so it would grow more leaves and that means we could eat them so we could make more food. Or you could add a gene that enabled the plant to make a chemical that would poison insects or be distasteful to insects but wouldn't affect humans. So this would mean you didn't have to put chemicals on the plant to kill the insects. The plant would naturally deter the insects. You could increase the amount of certain vitamins in the plant so that if people lived in areas of the world where their natural diet was 
lacking in those vitamins and that was causing them health problems, then potentially you could increase their intake of those vitamins just by eating your plants and that would mean that their health improved. So there, there are lots of worthy goals for doing this. Other examples include making plants grow in environments where they won't naturally grow. We know that the world population is growing very fast. It's 1% growth per year, give or take. That doesn't sound like a lot, but the reality is that equates to a doubling of the Earth's population every 70 years. So in the lifetime of one person, on average, listening to this program, that they could end up with twice as many people on Earth. Everyone's hungry, everyone needs feeding. We don't have enough crop-producing capacity to feed that many people. So we have to plan ahead for our food security, thinking, how do we augment food supplies? We may need to try and grow crops on land where they won't grow at the moment. So scientists, uh, including in Australia, and I was in Saudi Arabia in January, scientists there are working on this problem. They are engineering ways into crops to make things like wheat and rice grow on soils that are a very poor soils and b have a lot of salt in them and as climate change means that some countries have less and less water then actually conserving our water or enabling plants to grow better with water that's salty will actually be a major goal a major challenge and so those those are examples of how genetic modification can be beneficial the way in which the the modification processes are achieved is that you use various techniques including one uh, which is based around a, a bacterium called tumor fascians agrobacterium tumor fascians which naturally has evolved to insert bits of dna into plant dna and so scientists use that technique in order to get the genes in they also have other ways of doing it various rigorous tests are done to make sure that the plants aren't doing something toxic and there's not any evidence that uh, these plants are harmful that, that are being made and they do go through rigorous testing um, so most scientists um, not not for political or personal reasons most scientists just based on the evidence are comfortable that the technology as it's being deployed at the moment is safe and there's not any evidence this is going to be bad for people as long as we are careful so we make no assumptions we ask hard questions and we make sure that things are done properly and then things should be safe thank you chris chris there's a sms question that's come in which says have there been improvements in chemo chemotherapy without side effects Oh, medicine is, is moving forward leaps and bounds and there are always improvements happening. Uh, there are various ways to uh, target treatments better. In the old days we used to go in with sort of blunderbuss therapy and chemotherapy means putting chemicals into the body to achieve some kind of treatment. Most people use the word to mean to treat cancer. Well in the old days we used to shove in drugs that would poison any cell that was growing um, because cancer cells tend to grow faster than healthy tissue and the, the rationale was well if we hit the cancer cells harder than the healthy cells then the, the, the tumour should suffer more than the person. Um, that, that was responsible for a lot of side effects like people losing their hair, sore mouth, sore, sore tummy, um, anemia. Not great. Now scientists are coming up with much better ways to target therapies, particularly using things like what we call monoclonal antibodies, so that you home in just on the cells you want to treat and you deliver the treatment just to the target, not having off-target non-specific effects around the body. And these monoclonal antibody therapies are very, very successful. You basically make an antibody that, that homes in on one particular thing in the body and hits that leaving other tissues unharmed. And uh, there have been a number of examples of cancers which have come under complete control and remission as long as those antibodies are, are supplied regularly. Thank you, Chris. Uh, we're going to go now to Parkview, to Jeff. Good morning, Jeff. Morning. 
Go ahead. I have a question for Chris. Um, people are comparing the improving efficiency of solar panels with, say, Moore's law, which refers to the improving efficiency of computer chips relative to the size and the processing power. Do you foresee solar panels um, improving almost indefinitely in terms of their, their uh, conversion of, of light energy into electricity relative to the size of the panel indefinitely, or what are going to be the physical constraints uh, that will stop that, that improvement um, in perpetuity? Hello, Jeff. Well, the way in which solar panels work, the, the present generation of solar panels are based on silicon. You have a huge slab of silicon, a semiconductor, on your roof, and when photons, which are packets of light, hit the silicon, they knock electrons out of the crystal lattice. Those electrons are tapped off, go around a circuit, do some useful work, and they return to the crystal into what we call holes, and therefore electricity flows. Now, the problem with the present generation of those sorts of panels is that you need photons of a sufficiently high energy to knock out those electrons. And at the moment, that, that architecture is only able to harvest energy from a, a, a tiny minority of the photons in the visible light, because light at the red end of the spectrum isn't sufficiently powerful to achieve that effect. And that means that the panels are inherently limited in their efficiency. Now scientists are developing new crystals, including one very exciting chemical called perovskite, and these are capable of, A, soaking up more photons more efficiently, but also a wider range of photons more efficiently. Scientists are also looking at how, instead of just having one semiconductor layer, which is sensitive to one colour or wavelength of light, photons, what you could do is to stack up, or like a sandwich, multiple semiconductor layers, which are each removing from the light different colours or different energies and exploiting them and then you mix the whole output together to get your electrical circuit. Uh, so it's a very exciting time. The efficiencies that are being achieved are something in the region of 20-25%, so it's still quite low, but a back-of-the-envelope calculation will show you that if you just converted a tiny fraction of the Sahara Desert, which no one wants and no one uses at the moment, into a giant solar farm, actually you could supply the entire world's electricity demand at the moment. The problem would be distributing the energy, but people are working on that too. Thank you, Chris. Uh, we have time for one more question, uh, and I'm going to go to Jeff in Parkview. Oh, sorry, uh, Tabo in Melville. Um, morning, Tabo. How are you? I'm very well, thanks. How are you? Okay. What's your question for Chris? Yes, um, I wanted to ask the naked scientists about um, the question of aging. Um, I, I was reading some study um, from some guy called Dr. Aubrey de Grey, and his argument was that aging is an illness that can be solved, that can be cured like you cure flu and tuberculosis his whole rationale was that we've always considered um, aging to be natural but we, when we look at it um, as, a, as an illness we, we, we then uh, seek for, for, for um, cures for it basically so he, he went, so they did a, a um, what's this they had a competition for who could could make mice live longer and they found that uh, using his rationale um, they could increase the lifespan of a mouse by the equivalent of around 200 years so I'm, I'm wondering if the naked scientist knows anything about that and if there's any truth to what um, this guy's argument was 
Thank you, Tabo. Well, I know of um, Aubrey de Grey, and I sat there when he gave a presentation. It was about ten years ago now in uh, America at a conference because he's based in Cambridge, and what he said was, "It's it's a reality probably that the person, the first person who will live to the age of a thousand, has already been born." Now, whether that's speculative and an extremely irrational thinking or whether it's going to become a reality, no one will know. We'll have to wait and see, won't we? And probably none of us are going to be there to see that day. But we, what we do know about ageing is that cells in our body are being assaulted all the time by reactive chemicals that are made as byproducts of our metabolism. And those reactive chemicals damage the membranes, the outer coats of our cells. It damages the genetic information, the DNA in our cells. And the slow accumulation of this damage and the fact that you need to replace cells that get clapped out because of these various threats from disease and so on, the, the cells can only divide a certain number of times and you slowly erode down the numbers of stem cells capable of replacing those cells and eventually your tissues just can't replace themselves fast enough and when you add to that the damage that's happening to your DNA because of things like radiation and smoking and all the things that, that taste great that we love to eat but are bad for you when you add all those effects together you end up with a situation where cells eventually don't get replaced fast enough and your tissues begin to fall apart and clap out um, we need to understand a bit better about how we can replace those cells and get fresh cells into the body because rejuvenating the stem cell supply is what's going to enable our tissues to rege regenerate and rejuvenate, um, rather than trying to slow down the ageing process of our existing tissues per se. Um, and I mentioned senescent cells earlier, cells that get old and clap out. Scientists are finding if you can get rid of those, those half-dead cells that don't do anything, they just sit there getting in the way, actually you get a very profound regenerative effect in the way our organs and tissues work. So I think a two-pronged attack, replacing the stem cells to get reinvigorated healthy tissue plus getting rid of the, the clapped out dead old cells that will be a major help in helping us to live longer and stay looking great like me <laughs> thank you chris um and <laughs> apologies <laughs> apologies and now i want to see a photograph of you immediately uh, um just uh, apologies to those who tried uh, callers who didn't uh, get a call in to Chris, uh, you can try again next week, Friday, when you'll be back. And just on this last issue about is aging a disease, I think uh, the one thing that they used to say is there are only two guarantees in life, death and taxes. And let's be honest, we know that a lot of people get away without paying taxes. So, Well, uh, your, your president is leading the way on that one, isn't he? He's doing a grand job. Oh, I'm glad you said it and I didn't. <laughs> uh, so, anyway, thank you so much, Chris. Thank you for everybody calling. It's a pleasure. And, Thanks, and everyone. Bye-bye.